welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people. The whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! Hebrews chapter 10, just a couple of verses from there, starting with verse 23. Follow along as I read, and then we have a call and response. Hebrews chapter 10, 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, we are excited once again to be in these virtual spaces to hear from your word, to hear from you, to hear your speech to us, O Lord. Grant us your Holy Spirit that we would understand the very things of God in your word, that we would move closer to Jesus, closer to one another, closer and more deeply to being agents of peace in your world. Jesus, thank you that you have died and risen again and that you meet us gladly with grace so that all we have to do is come to you to know the forgiveness and renovation of Jesus. Father, we plead with you to inhabit these spaces now, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I'd like you to take just a moment and think in your mind about those that you know who are super spiritual people, whether Christians or otherwise. What makes those super spiritual people super spiritual? What qualities do you see them possessing? It's probably things like, well, a super spiritual person prays or meditates a ton. A super spiritual person reads the Bible or some sacred text a ton. A super spiritual person probably lives very simply. A super spiritual person probably spends a great deal of time in solitude. Now, as true as those things may be, what's missing from that picture? Praying a ton, reading the Bible a ton, simplicity and solitude. Well, often as we conceive of super spiritual people, what's missing is other people. Isn't it true that in your mind's eye, when you're thinking about these super spiritual people, what do they all have in common? We think of them and picture them alone. Why do we do that? wasn't too long ago that I was a church planter, and when I was in full-on church planting mode, I sponged up everything that I could in terms of church planting advice. And so I was told things like, hey, when you start a church, make sure that you don't only have Christians. It shouldn't just be a little huddle of the frozen chosen, so to speak, type of people. You need those folks to rub elbows with some seekers and skeptics so that it's a nice mix of people. Hopefully some of them will come to Jesus and start following him. Others won't. That's okay. But you need that healthy mix. And also the coaching is given 
that you don't just need seekers and skeptics to be part of your launch team for a good and healthy church plant. You also need some mature and committed Christians. I remember Jared Ayers, the church planter at Liberty Center City in Mainline, he said, yeah, when you start a church, you probably need a couple of people that know and have seen the inside of a Bible before. And I took that advice because I realized that for the Christians, if all we had on our launch team and core group were some folks that prayed a lot and read the Bible a lot and knew a lot of things about a lot of things and that were it, that would not have been enough. We needed, and God was gracious to bless us with, folks that showed up. People that were there. We needed folks like that. People that were with and for other people. People that were in and living in community with other folks. That's what made our church go. And for the people that show up, for the people that be there, sometimes we take those folks for granted. They may not be folks that are the life of the party. They may not be centers of attention. But if you have people in your life, friends and family, who are really good at saying, sure, I'll be there, and then they follow through and actually are there, those folks are gold. Those people are gifts to you. They are gifts to us. It takes sacrifice. It takes discipline to show up, to be there. And our culture right now needs people that show up and give steady presence as gifts to other people. And yes, I realize that the name of the game in our country in so many ways and throughout our history is individualism. We want to be by ourselves and do our own thing alone. It's become almost its own religion. David Brooks is a writer for the New York Times and some other things. He's listened to commencement speeches given in April, May, and June of years to high schoolers, to college students, to grad students, and he sees some similarities. He puts it like this. Graduates are sent off into this world with the theology, to use a religious word, of individualism ringing in their ears. If you sample some of the commencement addresses out there, you see that many graduates are told to, for example, follow your passion, chart your own course, march to the beat of your own drummer, follow your dreams, and find yourself. This is the litany of expressive individualism. We're a nation of individuals, and what do you know, often we find connecting with other people, showing up, being present, being engaged, a little bit hard. Here's another example. I was listening to a podcast recently. Over the past month or so, I finished up watching The Mandalorian, the Star Wars show on Disney+. Plus. Great show. Season one ended last year. Season two is starting at the end of this month, so I wanted to get ready for it. So I not only finished the series, but then also I listened to some podcasts about The Mandalorian to round off my viewing experience. I was listening to one podcast in particular that said, as the seasons of Mandalorian went on, one of the main themes is family. By the end of it, the titular Mandalorian had some folks around him, and they cared for each other. They were fighting the good fight against the world, or in this case, against the empire. Towards the beginning of the podcast, one of the hosts said, family is those people that you choose with whom you move through life together. Family is those people that you choose with whom you move through life together. And I may have been doing dishes or running outside or something when I heard that, and I just 
heard it, kept going in the episode, but they kept saying over and over again, family is those people that you choose with whom you move through life together. And towards the end of the podcast, it struck me. Hey, wait a second. Family is the people that you choose with whom you move through life together? That is pretty much the 180-degree exact opposite as to how people have thought about family in previous generations. In previous generations, people would have said, in point of fact, family is the people that you don't choose, with whom you have no choice but to move through life together. We don't choose our family. For better or for worse, they are ours, and we are stuck with them. I wanted to write into the podcast and say, Hey, you might not know this, but the English language recently invented a word for the people that you choose with whom to move through life together. That word is friend. Those are your friends. You choose them. They choose you. But family are the ones that you do not choose. But you see, individualism, autonomy, being for ourselves, completely self-determined, making all of our own choices, is on the ascendancy so much that we think about family within those same categories. And as I look at secularism, whether it's on the right or on the left, individualism is there in different kinds, but for the secular gospel, for the secular world, too often I see that the best alternative to individualism is tribalism. But the problem with tribalism is that we get with people with whom we're aligned and we partially at least define ourselves against those other people that are not in our circle and we really don't like them at all, do we? You may not have noticed this, but it's election season right now and probably when we get to election night, there are going to be election parties. I guess they'll be outside right now given coronavirus and everything like that. But for how many of these election parties are the host going to say, okay, Now, let's make sure that for the people that we invite, we have a nice balanced spectrum of people on the right and on the left so that we can experience this election together. By and large, that will not happen. We're going to choose our own tribe for the election night and have the voodoo dolls in our minds and in our hands of all the people that we don't like, that don't agree with us, and we hope that they will be smitten this evening. But whether you are a Christian or a skeptic, let's understand and realize that it is untrue if you think about seeking God, following God, loving God, that God is better sought and followed and loved alone. That really doesn't work very well. And if you're a skeptic watching this video here this morning, or maybe you're somebody that would have considered yourself a Christian, but you're wavering a little bit in your faith, don't question God alone. Do it together. And if you are somebody following Jesus right now, will you love, follow, seek, pursue God, not just on your own, but with other people as well? That's what we're going to talk about here this morning for the rest of the time in two parts. Practicing intimacy with God. We're going to talk about why we have this tendency to do it alone. And then we're going to talk about why it's easier and better for us, at least better if not easier, to do it together. Intimacy with God. First, why we tend to do it alone. Not that we should, but we do. And then also the benefits of doing so together. 
So we are emphasizing for this ministry year that began in September, we'll go through the school year, we are emphasizing community. Let's dig down with one another to form deeper bonds of community. Let's invite our friends and neighbors as we live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus here in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs or wherever God has placed you to build bonds of community with other people. We're talking about it in the sermon series, and we are tying these sermons right now for the fall through early winter to a book called Better Together, Discovering the Power of Community by a guy named Rusty George. And this morning we are tying to chapter four, Intimacy with God, George writes, is practiced better together. He puts it this way. God's call on our lives is to love him and love others. And that's impossible to do all by ourselves. When I force myself out of my comfort zone to be with others, I find that I not only strengthen their faith, I deepen mine. When I engage with other Christians, when I engage with other people, I not only strengthen them, but I am strengthened. I'm more like Jesus when I am with other people. We talked last Sunday about how the church in the early days of Liberty Laura was called the carload of idiots. Church as carload of idiots, really, that's a bus and not a scooter. It's a big bus where a lot of people were riding together. Some are in the front of the bus, some are in the back of the bus. But we're together, not a scooter where we're just puttering around on our own. It's a schooner, not a Segway. We are not to be Joe Bluth on his little sub- Segway noodling around doing whatever he wants, saying, I am my own person. We are called to be together. And it has been observed by numerous mothers and fathers in the faith throughout the centuries that as we access the New Testament, which is that set of biblical writings after and about Jesus of Nazareth crucified and resurrected, that the yous, the direct addresses of the New Testament, are consistently plural. Not singular, not you singular, but they are plural. When Jesus speaks to his disciples and says, this is who you are, and this is what you should do, He is speaking to a plurality, to a collective. When the Apostle Paul and others, after Jesus in the New Testament, speaks to the church, he says, this is who you are, plural, and this is what you should do. The New Testament, when it thinks about people, thinks about people as people, collectively, not as individuals. We have that here, too, in the book of Hebrews, including from our sermon text, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25, We have let us together occurring twice. It begins, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us, or at the beginning or the end of chapter 12 rather, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. We saw the same thing earlier in the book of Hebrews when I gave a sermon about Jesus and justice earlier from Hebrews chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. But whether it's the use that we see from Jesus and Paul and others, or the let us, There is something instinctive within us. We are wired to treat that you as singular and read the let us as let me. Why are we doing that? 
let me give you a couple of threads. And as we unpack why we're so individualistic in our thinking, I'm not only speaking to this sermon, but laying a foundation for the rest of the ministry year, both in sermon series and otherwise. Why are we so individualistic? A couple of reasons, including America. It's very American to be individualistic. Last week we talked about authors and thinkers and writers like Melville and Emerson and Whitman. Here's another one from a contemporary writer named Grill Marcus who talks about music and pop culture. Wish I had his job. Well, it would be the second job that I want. Pastor would be number one. But Grill Marcus talks about early American mythology and fixtures and, and people to whom we look, figures. We have, among others, the pilgrim, and the cowboy. The pilgrim and the cowboy have a mythic hold over us. And there are differences, if you think to our early history, between pilgrims and cowboys, but they're similar in that they both have listened to Frank Sinatra's My Way, and they agree. They are doing it their way. The pilgrims, they came to the new world so that they would find and see that they're doing religion their way, not according to the establishment in England. And then all the more with the cowboy pushing west, riding into the sunset, riding out of the sunset, looking at the sunset, lots of sunsets, but doing it all alone. That rugged individualist cowboy, because in our mythology, we gravitate towards being individualists. And it's also written into our narratives as well when it comes to presidents. Abraham Lincoln, born, grew up in a little log cabin in Illinois. And for more recent presidents, President Clinton, He's just a po' boy from Hope, Arkansas. This individual from very humble circumstances. President Obama, the first black president who came to govern a largely white establishment, or our current president, who on one hand was born into inherited wealth and establishment and yet was elected and came to Washington, D.C. as an outsider, as an individual taking on this establishment. We love and gravitate towards individuals. That's what we want to be. So it's whether America in general or American religion, especially Christianity. Scholars have observed over the years that in this country in particular, cultural narratives have been attached to Jesus and then been refracted back to Jesus' people. I read a book a few years ago, Stephen Nichols, a church historian, Jesus Made in America is the title, and for a big chunk of the late 1800s, early 1900s, Jesus was associated with cowboys. Jesus was the Marlboro Man from the ads, that ruggedly handsome, outdoorsy guy that had a cigarette in one hand and horse's reins in the other, always doing his own thing. And so Christianity imbibed this rugged individualism or, if you know a little bit about church history, the revivals, the Second Great Awakening of the 19th century, where before that, by and large, towns in our country had a couple of churches. If you were Catholic, you went to the Catholic Church, Lutheran, Lutheran Church, Presbyterian, Methodist, Episcopal, whatever. But then you had these traveling evangelists that would come and speak to you as individuals and would say, you've got to think about your own salvation. And if you believe in Jesus, you avoid the fires of hell and get to be with God by grace in heaven forever. And it's you as an individual that have to make this choice. Now, I agree with that. 
but it also started to truncate things a little bit where we were only thinking about Christianity in very individualistic terms. Then you have the proliferation of churches everywhere. You don't like that church? Just go to this one. We become consumers about our Christianity. So late 20th century, early 21st century, it's me and my Bible. We are so individualistic. And another reason, that's why, one of the reasons, why historically and statistically, both in the past and in the present, white Christians in particular, we have been slow to recognize racism as a problem. We're tuned into the individual problem of the heart, one person harming another, but as we think about sins and harm against people groups, we don't have those categories as well developed because it's all about God, me, my Bible, and my relationship with God. We are a nation and in many cases, a religion of individuals, and that's also come to define as well the new religion of expressive individualism, if I could call that a religion, where if you want to be a good modern person, be yourself at all costs. Yeah, we're not totally against however we conceive of God, but it's God emphatically on our own terms. An Australian pastor, thinker, and writer named Mark Sayers has said this, belief is still out there, but it is being renegotiated in order to provide solace while maximizing individual freedom and choice. We want God, but we still want our own autonomy and authority. From the early days of Liberty Collingswood, as we go back a couple of years, when I moved into this area to start this church and others came alongside, I would try to engage with lots of people in the community. And Jim, why'd you move here? Where are you from? What are you doing? Well, I'm starting a church. And then I'll ask what do you think about church? Where are you with some of these things? And a lot of the time I would hear back from friends and neighbors, well, church might be okay for you, but for my own part, I'm not really on board with organized religion. And I understand the thinking behind that, but whether then or now, I would try to offer back, I hope humbly and gently, that all too often for those of us that say, we are not on board with organized religion, the alternative that we fall into It's just individual religion, where it's just me thinking about my own thing and determining my own reality. And also, we can fall into tribalism, which, again, is a group of individuals, highly autonomous, self-defined against other people. And again, whether we're watching as a Christian or a non-Christian here, shouldn't we understand and recognize that if we are so individualistic in our thinking— isn't at least part of it, I'm not saying all of it, but at least part of it, isn't part of it hubris, where there is an embedded underwater arrogance on our part, where if not in as many words, we have this idea, I am going to define everything for myself, and I have everything that I need to make my own choices. That's arrogance. And isn't it the case, if we try to maximize our own individuality and maximize our own autonomy, that often we can become stuck and less mature because we are stuck with ourselves. So that's why we tend to do things individually instead. What if we would do things, including practicing intimacy with God together as a community? Intimacy with God, the benefits of doing it together. It is really important It is really important for us as individuals to show up and be with other people. 
Verse 25 of our sermon text says, Let us not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Let's show up. It serves our church whether showing up, and we're doing a lot of showing up digitally right now, whether it's small groups or otherwise, or volunteering, whether it's on our block or in our towns or in our workspaces. Show up. Be a person that, be, that is there as a steady presence that's really important right now. And consider this. The greatest two commandments that Jesus has given followers of him, number one, love the Lord your God with all of your mind, soul, heart, and strength, and also love your neighbor as yourself. If you are somebody that goes it alone, you cannot follow those two commandments. If you're a loner, if you're that Marlboro man or Marlboro woman, it's all about you being alone, you can't love other people. Because you're by yourself, and it's a truncated way of relating to God and loving him with all of your own mind and soul and heart and strength. But we have, whether it's from the book of Hebrews or New Testament more generally, this invitation to say, let us pursue and love and follow God together in some particular ways. Let us together do some confessing and encouraging and refining and experiencing. Let's confess the beginning of our sermon text, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. In a couple of moments, we're going to wrap up the sermon, go into the Apostles' Creed. We say that together. And I usually use similar wording as I introduce the the creed. How's it go? And now, in the words of the Apostles' Creed, what do I say? Let us say what we believe. We say it together, and that's not an accident. And whether we're gathered in person, hearing one another say, we believe these truths about our triune God, or or now virtually, or throughout the ages. This Apostles' Creed, for example, has been confessed online, and in church sanctuaries like this one, and on plains, and verandas, and on mountaintops, and in huts, and in caves, by people who look incredibly different from one another, but we are bolstered. We are inspired, saying together, Let us confess, let us hold fast to this God whom we love and who has loved us first. But not only that, together we can encourage one another. The end of our sermon text, encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day that Jesus returns, the last day, all the more as we look forward to Jesus coming back, let's encourage one another. We can't do that alone. Hey, I want to encourage you says somebody who is alone all the time. That doesn't really work very well, does it? We need others so that we can give mutual encouragement. That's how it works. And maybe you've been in a community of faith before when you're low and you're struggling, but you see other people that are low and struggling, but they are holding on. They are holding fast. And you're struck by the faithfulness of, of that other person, and you're encouraged by it. Or maybe you're somebody that needs a word of encouragement. Move towards community and see if it doesn't occur that somebody else gives you a good word or serves you in a certain way that perks you up, that makes you say, yes, I can do this. I'm going to keep going now. And it's not only within the church, but like I said, in workspaces, in our neighborhoods, on our block, 
students in your schools. I think schools nowadays do a really good job, negatively speaking, about eschewing bullying culture that is great, but don't only not do certain things, positively be an encourager to other people, be a person of hope, be a person of love as we encourage one another. That's a really good thing. And also refining. We need to be with other people for the purpose of being refined. Verse 24, where the author of Hebrews says, And now let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Rusty George puts it this way. All of Jesus' actions were acts of service towards others. The only person I serve when I'm alone is me. When I'm alone, the world revolves around me. I get my way 100% of the time. I'm in complete control. Sometimes in that setting, I can even assume God is there to serve my bidding. But when I'm around others, I'm forced to yield to what others want. I don't always get my way. I have opportunities to meet needs to serve someone besides myself. If I'm alone, how can I serve other people? If I'm alone... How can I serve other people? And one of the great things about the church is that we can be with others. And it is the case with the church that the church is those people that we do not choose, by and large, with whom that we can move through life together. Now, yes, when you engage with our community, for example, if you come in covenant with us here at Liberty Collingswood, we're not a cult. No, seriously, we're not a cult. You can leave anytime, that's fine. But we are voluntarily together, but at another level, we are voluntarily together with other people that are voluntarily here, and we would not have chosen this community apart from the church. And it is good and refining for us to be with this community that we did not choose, for people that are different from us, for people that rub us the wrong way, whether it's political opinions or otherwise— Hey, we are here together. Let me learn from me, from people that, with whom we're different, so that we can be refined together, stirring one another up to love and to good deeds. That is a great thing. And I long for church to be a place where there is positive pressure, not judgy, but healthy pressure, where together we are encouraged and refined by one another to sin less and serve more. To sin less and serve more, whether it's within our church or around us in our community. And finally, when we are together, we can better experience God when it's not just ourselves, but we're doing it in the context of other people. One more time from Rusty George. Some of us think that the apex of our faith experience comes from being awakened in a dream, a personal retreat, or even a silent epiphany while listening to a podcast. But the Bible encourages God's children to find even greater fulfillment by journeying in faith with each other. Let us, collectively let us, let's disabuse ourselves of the notion that the best spiritual experiences are on the beach or on the mountaintop when we're all by ourselves. And many of these same spiritual practices, singing, praying, reading, listening, serving. Let's do it together to multiply our joy. Years ago, there was a post-9-11 novel written called Netherland by Joseph O'Neill, and it's a family that experiences trauma after 9-11. The family starts to disintegrate, but towards the end of the book, comes back together, and this family, husband and wife and kids, they are flying back from Europe to the U.S. They're from New York, 
And as they come into New York, they see sunrise on New York, and it's glorious. And the novel ends when the husband is not looking at this glorious sunrise on New York, but he is looking at the reflected light of the glorious sunlight from New York on the faces of his wife and children and seeing that joy reflected and refracted and shared, seeing that light among this family is that which completes his joy. So what spiritual practice of yours can you open up to somebody else and say, hey, let's do this together? Maybe it's somebody that you know very well. Maybe it's somebody within your household, within your family. Maybe it's somebody that you don't know very well. Maybe you need help and say, hey, I have been a ninja in the woods too long. I have been a marble man or woman. I don't want to do that anymore. Can we please do this together? Or what might you sacrifice of yourself to engage and serve other people more? Maybe it's sacrificing some time so that you can meet, whether in virtually or outside, with somebody else to do some spiritual things together. Maybe it's showing up to serve, doing some social justice stuff or otherwise together. I think about Lent, and so awesome Lent is coming once again for us. We, when we talk about what we're giving up for Lent or a spiritual discipline, it is so individualistic. I'm giving up certain foods, or I'm not going to drink, or I'm going to spend a little more time in the Bible by myself. And the more I think about those things, the finer the line becomes between giving up something for Lent and treat yourself. But what instead can we sacrifice and put off and put down so that we can be with other people more. And it is a sacrifice. And that's when we need to lean into Jesus, to double down or to begin to take steps of faith towards this Christ as we reminded are from him that Jesus sacrificed for us too. Jesus, as I am sacrificing, that I may enjoy the benefits of being together and pursuing you in the context of community Remind me of how you died on the cross for me, paid the penalty for my sins, graciously gives me the Holy Spirit so that I can have new affections and new energies to move towards you and towards other people. Remind me, Jesus, of who you are so that I can be with you and so that I can be with other people more. We conclude from Hebrews chapter 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had sacrificed for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after-party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.